This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 13th of May 2021. And yesterday, Norman, was all the budget washout, and we don't want to spend too long talking about that. But one budget assumption that really stood out to me was that the assumption that our borders are going to be closed until at least mid-next year, which is about two and a half years longer than I think most Australians wanted to have the borders closed. Obviously, we've got to keep the coronavirus out. That has been our strategy so far, but that is a really long time frame on one hand. And on the other, it's assuming that everyone who's eligible for a vaccine will have had it by the end of this year, which at the moment feels ambitious. Well, I actually think that what they're assuming is that they won't get it by the end of this year. Otherwise, they wouldn't have said mid-next year. Um, Because if they really thought at the end of this year, then you could have opened up. I mean, I know there's an issue about variants and things do change. But the reality is that once you get to 70 or 80% of people immunised and everybody who can get immunised has the opportunity to, and with particular caveat here, the disadvantaged groups are covered because those are the people that current vaccine programmes might not get to. But let's assume that everybody who wants to have a vaccine can have had it, disadvantaged groups are covered. Then you could open up because it's people's choice not to be covered. And in fact, it gives a bit of a driver to actually get your vaccine. But if you choose not to be vaccinated, then why would you keep the borders closed for the people who've actually made a choice not to be covered? We can't do that. So at some point we do. So if if we were confident in our vaccine rollout uh, toward to the end of this year, then it would be the end of this year, not middle of next year. So I suspect they don't think they're going to be covered immunisation-wise to the middle of next year. It just shows lack of confidence in our immunisation programme, in my humble view. Do we need to be doing better? Do we need to be changing those assumptions? Are those sensible assumptions to be making based on what we're seeing at the moment, or should we be being more ambitious? Well, we could be more ambitious. On Coronacast, we've often talked about the number of 200,000 a day. 200,000 a day proportionately is pretty much right up there with the peak performance of the United States and the UK. And so that's a pretty big stretch for us to get to that point. But there's no reason why we couldn't with the states being involved. And obviously, we've got to have the Pfizer coming through to immunise people under 50 and then children from the age of 12 up, which presumably the TGA will be approving quite soon. There's no reason for them not to be. It does require a ramp up. It just seems that when we lost the targets, we lost the opportunity to get there by the end of this year. Well, hopefully, if we can ramp it up, it's something that will hold us in good stead for other vaccination programs going forward, like influenza. And Jess is actually asking, will we need to get a vaccine for COVID-19 every year, like the way we do with the flu shot? Jess makes the point that's a really big ask of people and a big task for the health system. Well, not if it's combined like Novavax is planning with the influenza vaccine so that you get, you know, two in one. And GPs are well equipped to give immunization and people can go through and to their GP and have it done. And uh, we managed to get about 70% of Australians, I think it is, well, it's 70% of people over 65, I think, but it's, but it's still quite a lot of Australians immunised against influenza. And it doesn't rely just on GPs. Pharmacists can do it as well. So I think if you harness the available people and remunerate them accordingly, you can get it done. And just on coronavirus and flu vaccines, because this is something we've been talking about over the last couple of days, Matt has submitted a question, as all of our listeners can do at abc.net.au slash coronacast. Matt says, love the show. Thanks for keeping us informed. Why, if a combined coronavirus and flu vaccine is being developed, 
why can't the existing separate vaccines be given at the same time at the moment we're told to get them at least two weeks apart? You probably can quite safely do that. So, for example, you get, you know, children get uh, measles, mumps, rubella. They also get combined immunizations in the first year of life. So we, we combine immunizations all the time. And I just think that these are new vaccines. They don't really know very much about them and the immunity to COVID. And they're being uh, quite conservative. But the, the way to do it is to combine several vaccines in one and... That has not been done yet, but hopefully it will. Well, you mentioned that we're learning more about coronavirus all the time and the ways that we can prevent its spread. And in the in the United States, the CDC has been giving advice about the risk of catching COVID outdoors, but it looks like perhaps they've been overestimating that risk. Yeah, it's an analysis, a really good analysis in the New York Times. And it probably goes to their conservatism about aerosol spread as well, which has recently changed. But they've been saying that it's up to 10% of spread is outdoors. And they've clung to that. But in fact, the data show, when you look at it, and it's, a re- it's a really good piece, which I'd recommend people, we'll splice in the link to it, uh, to our website, is that the, uh, the risk is actually 0.1%. So it's actually about a hundredth of what the uh, CDC is saying. So it's a really negligible spread. You know, and they've quoted places where, you know, has, where there are some studies which have shown a higher degree of outdoor spread. But it's likely that that was... Well, corrupted is the wrong, is a pretty cool word to use, but let's just use the word corrupted. The data were corrupted by the fact that maybe people were on the same underground train or they, it was a hot day in Singapore and people were you know, cuddling together in, in the shade and that sort of thing rather than being truly outdoors. But you know, there's some good data from around the world which suggests it's really vanishingly small, the risk of true outdoor spread. Hence the reason I suspect that we've had pretty good results from places like Howard Springs. That is really interesting. And that really has implications for policy, not just in terms of quarantine, like you mentioned Howard Springs, which is a really good point, but also just in terms of uh, policy in places where coronavirus is more widespread in the sorts of lockdown measures that are appropriate. Yeah, and mask wearing, the rules about mask wearing outdoors. So Singapore, which has reported a higher level of outdoor spread, um, which is one study which may have been corrupted by this issue that they actually may have been indoor spread, misclassified as outdoor spread. You know, at times in Singapore, you've had to wear masks outside. So now you can actually just insist on on masks indoors, which in fact is what New South Wales did when they had this uh, case and this man and his wife who, who turned positive and you didn't know where the intermediates were. The one problem with that is if there's a lot of COVID around and you're wearing a mask, and you're wearing a mask to protect other people, every time you fiddle with it, you risk spreading the virus. And therefore, the safest thing is to put it on when you're outside and just wear it while you go shopping and don't fiddle with it until you get home. That's the main reason rather than outs- rather than uh, the risk of spread outside. So you've just got to be careful still how you handle your mask. And I think people have got a bit slack with that. Mm. Can we talk about risk of um, COVID to the groups of people that are seen to be less risky, Marita's written in saying, we were speaking yesterday about the vaccine approval for children and noted that while kids don't get as sick, they can spread COVID. But Marita's seen pictures and reports of children in India very sick and dying. What does this mean? Is it starting to affect children? Could it be their life circumstances making them more vulnerable? It's a very good question. I haven't seen those pictures of children. There's some 
very odd infections secondary to COVID-19 spreading around with high reports of very unusual infections, very rare in Australia, called mucormycosis. That's the fungal infection that they've been seeing in India. Yes. And you've got a population who are malnourished and therefore relatively immune deficient. And so you just don't know whether that's, that's what's going on. And when you've got such massive numbers, even though it's rare in children to get serious disease, when you've got massive numbers, rare things become more common. In other words, they're still rare on a per, per head basis, but because you've got so many per heads of infection, you're getting more younger people in, in, affected. And there's plenty of middle-aged and younger people, unfortunately, getting seriously ill and dying um, in India. And it's not just in India. In the first wave, when we were talking about this way back at the beginning of last year, we were talking about young children and uh, young people being very sick from coronavirus. Like you say, it might be a really small proportion, but scaled up, there's still people. And it also gives light to something else we were talking about last year, which was that when the virus hit sub-Saharan Africa and to some extent India and other places last year, it seemed to be relatively mild compared to other parts of the world. And one theory was that it was the BCG immunization, so that you had quite a high prevalence of, people, of kids getting BCG to prevent tuberculosis. And BCG is known as an immune stimulant. In fact, there have been trials in healthcare workers of giving them BCG to see whether or not it prevents COVID infection. I've actually not seen any publications from those trials. But I think that the current appalling pandemic in India shows that even if that's true, it's now been swamped by the prevalence of the virus. Clearly, people are getting high doses of the virus and getting seriously ill, which is the other thing, actually, Tegan, is that when you've got it circulating in multi-generational families, it's probably very high-dose virus. And the higher the dose of the virus you get, the more sick you become. Uh, we've just got one final question today from Vicky saying uh, she's due for her second shot of Pfizer next week. She's feeling a bit under the weather and it's got her wondering if she came down with a cold a few days before her second shot, should she still get it or, should, or will she need to defer it? Good question and I don't know the answer to it. You're really going to have to talk to your GP about that. I think the general thing is that if you're due for an immunisation and you've got a viral infection running at the same time, you probably should wait until that goes away until you get your immunisation, um, just so that you don't get particularly, you know, just so that you can separate out the side effects from the vaccine. There, there's not much evidence that having a concurrent viral infection reduces the effect of your vaccine, but probably it's a smart thing to do. But don't take my advice. Talk to a real doctor. Well, that's all we've got time for today. We'll catch you tomorrow. See you then. 